Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Mr. Cummins on the defensive and into the bunker. From London to Durham and Barnard Castle in between, welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, he's been getting away with it all his life. Has Dominic Cummings, the slippery squidward of the spab game, just escaped the consequences of breaking the rules he himself wrote? Meanwhile, we still have a health crisis to solve. Looking beyond the emergency, how will we need to change the NHS to be fit for the future? And what other health issues will the health service need to deal with? Director of Research and Chief Economist at the Nuffield Trust, John Appleby, joins us to discuss the future of healthcare. And with the art crippled by COVID, the government has set up a cultural renewal task force to get the sector in shape for a post-pandemic recovery. What does its composition say about our leaders' vision of culture and who do our panel think will do a good job at revitalising the arts industry? All this and more in today's bunker. If you were able to join us for the emergency Cummings cast at the weekend, we hope you enjoyed it. And we can announce that we're doing another live stream on Zoom for Patreon backers on the evening of Thursday, the 11th of June. If you support The Bunker or our sister show, Romaniacs, on Patreon, you'll already have had news about it. And if you want to join in, well, it's a good time to sign up. As well as live stream access, you'll get the shows early, every show with no adverts, plus mugs and T-shirts and lots of other benefits. So search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. On today's panel, we have the editor of LSE Brexit, Ros Taylor. Hi, Ros. How are you doing? Are you worn out over the weekend? It was a bit exhausting, wasn't it? When we had to wait half an hour for the wretched man to turn up and do his press conference. And I was just, oh, it, I was, it was hot. I wanted to be in the garden. But no, I, I, I faithfully stuck by the, by the TV waiting for him. And I'm sure he loved the fact that there were thousands of people like me just waiting and watching for him. He did a full Axel Rose, didn't he? Just keep them waiting as long as possible. Um, the schools are set to, I know this is a subject dear to your heart, the schools are still set to reopen on the 1st of June, despite strong opposition from teachers and unions. Um, are they right to press ahead with this? Circumstances changing? Well, I think they are. I mean, ours isn't opening till the 8th of June um, in any case. And I think that's the case for quite a lot of councils around the country. You've also got to bear in mind that it's only three-year groups going back out of 13. Um, that's um, that's really a fairly small percentage of children going back and they are now rowing back from sending back other primary school pupils even before July uh, so that is depressing for me this is a 
and I know this is something that perhaps people don't want to hear. This is a social equality issue. It's a mental health issue. It's an economic issue. It, it goes to sort of the heart of how we deal with this pandemic and whether we privilege going out and shopping as a as an important thing or whether we actually look at the mental health of our children, at whether they're getting educated and what it will mean to young people to be out of education for six months. And it also, it's it's about social equality because... If you look at what private schools are doing, it's very different. They're providing a lot more education, a lot more support. Some uh, schools aren't providing much at all. So we're seeing inequality widening as a result of this. And I don't think in particular that we're listening to the voice of children in this at all. Mm. Which well, apparently we've been told that outdoor markets and car showrooms are going to be opening on June the 1st as well. Did, was this all a bit, don't look at Don, go and buy a car? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's ridiculous because people are not going to be buying cars, uh, most people at the moment, because of the economic uncertainty. I think they're very optimistic if they think that people are going to be going in for big purchases at the moment. Desperate though they may be to get around without public transport, it's still very optimistic to think that they're in, the, in line for making big purchases at the moment. Also back on the bunker is comedian, broadcaster and writer Ahir Shah. Hello Ahir, how are you? Uh, hello Andrew, I'm very well. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm relaxing, I'm full of vim and vigour. I, uh, I, don't, I don't have a wife, I don't have a child, so I've got no one to worry about uh, going back to school <laughs> and I've got no one to drive to a beauty spot on Easter Sunday. Uh, so I can just, uh, you know, I can just, uh, I can just sit here and look at the look at the flowers i arranged over the weekend well a lot of us are desperate for haircuts and even dental treatments but we don't hear much about eye tests so should we all just drive to bernard castle to make sure that our eyes are in <laughs> glasses wearers like you like you well, and me I, I got an eye test uh, just before this whole thing kicked off so uh, i got uh, i got my prescription updated uh, and thank god i did otherwise i would have to commandeer the next voxel course i saw uh, sweeping past me and that would be the only way of doing it our special guest, John Appleby, is the Director of Research and Chief Economist at the Nuffield Trust, the independent health think tank. He previously worked in the NHS in both London and Birmingham, and as a senior lecturer at both UEA and the University of Birmingham. Hello, John. Welcome to the bunker. How are you doing? Hi there. Hi there. Doing very well. Actually, can I just say what I liked about Dominic Cummings' uh, press conference the other day was um, there was a line towards the end where he said... Um, don't believe everything you see on TV. And I thought, says man on TV. <laughs> a, ref a, ref a massive reflection of the whole thing. Anyway, I think there are some you serious don't believe everything public you hear on podcast. I'm white. Public <laughs> says man on podcast. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a... Yeah, no, there are some, there are some serious pu uh, public health issues as well that are coming out of that. And I, I, I saw a survey, I think it was conducted... Yesterday, day before, um, and it was about people's worry about COVID nineteen, and it's been it's been pretty high as you can imagine, and but it's been coming down very slowly over the last sort of uh, few weeks. But there was a massive drop the other the last uh, figures for um, I, I think it might have been Saturday, and it's I mean that's right. that's you know that wor that lack of worry is a worry in a way. Do you think it's connected with uh, what our leaders are seen to be doing or condoning? It's hard not to think that it isn't. Sorry, there's a, lots of double negatives in there. I think it probably is because, as I say, the trend was downwards. You know, we've seen COVID-19 deaths decreasing, um, or at least the rate of increase decreasing. 
so, you know, you can expect after, what is it now, you know, two months or more that people's worries will start to slacken off. But this was a quite, uh, I mean, it's a really noticeable drop in terms of people's worry in the course of almost one day. Mm. And we did see the kind of the very uh, forthright response from Professor Stephen Reicher of SPIB, the Scientific Pandemic, Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviours, who said that Boris Johnson has trashed all the advice that we have given on how to build trust and secure adherence to the measures necessary. He listed the things that were trashed, trust, equity, respect. I mean, has has the government kind of dealt um, a, an irrevocable blow to its own strategy with this? performance over the weekend i have a horrible feeling it has i mean i wish it hadn't um i should say and this hasn't received so much news attention it has in the sort of specialist healthcare press that there have been something like six or seven nhs trust chief executives who have um complained about um uh, the whole Cummings affair and going to Durham and so on, which is incredibly unusual for, for trust, NHS trust chief executives to do so. And I think they've, you know, they've been driven to do that by, by the, by circumstances. So it was an old-fashioned political crisis at the weekend, with the Mirror and Guardian revealing on Friday that Dominic Cummings had travelled to Durham with his family during lockdown. A string of identikit support tweets from ministers taking the line that caring for your child is not a crime followed, and then subsequent stories about additional trips. In Cummings's extraordinary press conference in the Rose Garden at the back of number 10, he claimed that these second and third trips didn't happen. This week, today, the government has made a concerted effort to say that we are moving on. But as we recorded today, the Undersecretary of State for Scotland, Doug Douglas Ross has resigned over Johnson's backing of Cummings. Ros, are we moving on, as the government would so dearly like us to do, do you think? I think ultimately we will. I think this is an un, uh, uncommon view, but I think Dominic Cummings probably salvaged his job yesterday. Um, I was surprised that he performed relatively well. I thought it would be an absolute car crash. What he succeeded in doing, and I hasten to say that I do not believe his explanations, or many of them, uh, there were so many, but what he succeeded in doing was to paint a picture of a man wrestling with a difficult moral dilemma and coming to a conclusion which he absolutely stands by because it's part of the uh, the Cummings brand that once you've decided things, you know, you, you, you go ahead. So there was no room for self-doubt in the Cummings universe. Nonetheless, he played on a number of tropes which people who inclined to believe him would have made sympathise with him, like the fact that his child was also ill, his child went to A&E, things like this. And while, as I say, I'm not susceptible to... To, to his explanation, I think those who knew nothing about him previously may have been swayed by this. And I think they are counting now on other issues of more immediate concern to people's lives right now, taking over the news agenda. And I think he may have just salvaged his job. Don't think for a minute that he should have done. I think he's an evil bastard, but you know, uh, but um, I, I, I suspect he has. What he has succeeded in doing is weakening Boris Johnson because suddenly we see the the man who works for him. We saw Johnson struggling and floundering, actually I think much more than Cummings did in the two news conferences that he's done in the last few days to justify his actions. And I think Johnson is the one who now looks weaker. Yeah, I mean, the way Johnson's kind of huffed and puffed and tried to scamper through the initial press conference was, was remarkable and he really did look 
out of puff and out of ideas. And, um, you know, you wonder, how, you know, will that perception or that, you know, kind of picture of him persist? Um, do you think I mean, what these things are all about? What sticks, what stays in the, in the public mind? What do you think has stuck? I mean, because he, you know, the, the strategy of the, of the Rose Garden press conference was to kind of show in numbing detail why he thought he was right. But there are kind of two levels to this, aren't there? There is, did you stick to the rules and did you stick to the spirit of the rules? What do you think has stuck for the general public? I think it's absolutely clear that he broke the rules. I think pretty much everyone is now now thinks that. So it then moves on to the question of can you excuse him through special circumstances, through extenuating circumstances that he's described, from breaking them? Um, I don't think it was justified. I think a lot of people don't think it was justified, but he painted a picture of himself as Johnson's humble and indispensable servant who was wrangling with his conscience as to the best thing to do to uh, to ensure he could get back to work quickly when Johnson himself was ill. And that was very much the the optics that he was trying to put across in the whole statement. He was trying in sitting at a small, you know, informal table in that way, was trying to make himself seem less important to to the project than in fact he is. And whether that will succeed, I don't know. Um, everybody was quite surprised that uh, that the the mail came out harshly against Johnson and Cummings. And then after the Rose Garden thing, went with a headline, no apologies, no regret. Do you think that uh, this is something of a permanent breach between the previously relentlessly pro-Johnson mail? Again, no, I don't think so. I think the mail stood out really because I was quite surprised to see the Times backing him quite strongly. The Sun kind of pretty much as well. Uh, Daily Telegraph, it, it, it's, there have been doubts, but I don't think there has been a decisive rupture in his relationship with the right-wing press. And I think he has every chance of winning back the mail in the next, in the coming weeks, if he does things that please them, the question is whether he can do that. And I think there has there, doubts have been sown now about the authority and the uh, the 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 trustworthiness of the Johnson government. This isn't going to be the thing that breaks it, but there are now doubts, and that puts Johnson in a weaker position. Here, he, he was handed, uh, Cummings was handed a gold-plated opportunity by Beth Rigby of Sky News to apologise, to say, I am sorry. And he didn't take it. And even an insincere apology is still an apology. Do you think that was a mistake? Should he have just said, yes, I am, I am, even a, even a kind of a, a pretty Patel style, I'm sorry if you were unhappy with my actions? Yes, of course it's a mistake. Like, it's... <laughs> It's asking whether it's like a, a mistake from a calculated political perspective is like glossing over the fact that just on a basic human level, be sorry for that. Like, surely, like, it's my takeaway from the entire thing was that I sat on my sofa for half an hour and then eventually watched a man deign to come out and say fuck you to me about 20 different times in 20 different ways over the course of an hour. And of course, and, and that is the most galling thing. Like, like everything taken in isolation, like I can get in a way, like, all right, fair enough, not the fact that he went home and his wife unfortunately had symptoms and then he went back to work, which he definitely, like that obviously is something that we just blanket have all been told. You cannot do that if you're in that sort of contact with someone who's ill. But on that level, like 
I, I can understand on a human level the driving to Durham thing. And I can understand that because many people, including friends of mine who are parents who were ill and had to look after their children, would have wished that they could do that. So obviously everyone can understand that uh, on a human level. And to be honest with you, if you didn't have to deal with this sort of nonsense excuse about an eye test, I can even understand someone saying like, look, being ill is a nightmare. I wanted to just sit with my wife and kid somewhere nice for 15 minutes before going back to the horror that I have to, like, again, shouldn't do it, should resign. But I can understand that on a human level. But just say, like, say that you do, if, if you say that you do things because you're a fallible human being who can make mistakes and that you apologize for them when you've made them, that, that, that's just what people do, isn't it? Like, yeah. People. Given, given the Interesting word, people, of, yeah. not, not implacable, implacable machines like Dominic uh, Cummings, the, I hear. Given the, given, the, yeah, given the degree of sacrifice that have been made by so many people in very similar, if not identical, circumstances and with fewer resources to fall back upon. Yeah. That, that, that cut, man. John, I mean, we touched on this earlier, um, the, the, you know, it's what it means for... The way the, the way the public will take public health messaging and public and public health policy, people will make up their own minds is a phrase that has been repeated many times uh, in this. The idea that uh, we're moving from clear top down messaging, unambiguous top down messaging, which it claims the, it appears the government senior advisor was himself unable to abide by, into a kind of well, you know, do what you do what you like, do what you think is right. What do you think the consequences are of that? Yeah, I agree. I think it's massively muddied the waters. I mean, the waters are never completely crystal clear, I have to say, in the first place. And I'm sure that many people will have made decisions which may not have fitted exactly into the guidelines and the and the recommend. Well, it weren't just guidelines and recommendations. I mean, I don't know whether you remember the getting a letter from Boris Johnson through your letterbox, but I had a look at it again. It's actually yeah. stuck to my fridge. I don't know. I kept it for posterity, I think. And, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty... They're not collector's items, there's a lot of them. There's millions of them, no, no value on eBay. <laughs> I'm banking on everybody else throwing those away. Um, but it's, it, it was pretty unequivocal. I think you'll win that bet. <laughs> <laughs> it was un- pretty unequivocal there. There was the Coronavirus Act, which set out other things as well. Anyway, I think people, you know, they've been... People have been making s- some judgments uh, uh, of, the, of their own. But I think this... This really does change things. And I think from a sort of public health point of view, um, it's the sort of Cummings caveat now, you know, well, I'm here, uh, Mr. Policeman, because, uh, you know, I've travelled to do this thing. I've, um, you know, I've stopped off on the motorway. Oh, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I mean, we'll wait and see to see if it actually does really change people's behaviour. I mean, it's quite interesting. At the, at the sort of daily briefings, they have that... Um, transport graph that they're showing sort of use of public transport and and private cars and so on also google have been publishing data based on um phone um positioning of people visiting parks and all that sort of thing i've been i'd be interested to see what the next you know batch of data shows on that but it'd be hard to believe it hasn't had an impact and we're not out of this yet you know deaths are coming right down we clearly passed the, the the I'll call it the first peak, not to be doomy about this, but uh, we've seen in other countries there can be other peaks, and we know in other infectious pandemics. Also, it can I, th- come I think back. it's worth sorry to interrupt you, John, but I think it's worth noting that uh, a lot of the stuff that Mr. Cummings 
uh, did was during that peak and indeed when things were still on the way up. No, absolutely, uh, yes. It's, which I think is important. To no, know. absolutely. It wasn't, it's, it wasn't just sort of uh, last week. You're, you're absolutely right. This was at... Um, well, end of March, beginning of April, and, you know, the peak was somewhere, we think, around April the 8th and so on nationally. But, you know, the numbers were going up. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, I think it will have uh, repercussions for the public's health, to be honest. Just to, to wrap this up, between us, I mean, do we think, do we think this Cummings thing is now over? That, you know, whether we like it or not, it, it, it is going to move on? Or is this going to... I mean, we've seen a resignation, we've seen... People are, uh, you know, people in, in influential positions are still outraged about this, and it has created what could be a lasting impression amongst the people who matter, which are conservative voters. That As this, a, I, I don't think, I don't think it's over by any stretch of the imagination. Just because this is the sort of thing where, like, look, unfortunately, like there are a lot of things that I wish could have done for certain elements of the Conservative Party over the last few years. Uh, Windrush immediately springing to mind. Um, but the fact of the matter, like, unfortunately, human beings or have slightly bounded empathy. Uh, right. But when we're dealing with a situation like this, when it is literally every single person can relate this to an element of their own life and the struggles that they will have been through recently. Anyway, like, it's not going away as long as you know what a Zoom funeral is. After a weekend like that, you might have been forgiven for forgetting that this is actually a healthcare issue. COVID has amounted to almost a refounding moment for the NHS, sealing its place as a national treasure all over again. But a point will come when it won't be dealing with coronavirus all the time. How will the NHS evolve as demographics change and the economy around it tightens? And what other health problems do we need to look out for when COVID is banished? John Appleby of the Nuffield Trust is here to help us navigate the future of health. John, firstly, regarding the COVID crisis, on international comparisons, the UK is doing famously badly. We now have the fifth worst deaths per millions to total in the world. The reasons range from locking down too late to failure to test and many other things. But even if you're paying close attention, it's hard to kind of crystallise pinpoint why we are doing so badly can you give us your overview of, of why that is yeah well as you as you say Andrew it's actually a very it's going to be a very complicated story to unpick and there'll be academics and there'll be health service people as, as more data emerges as we understand this this that's the other thing we don't completely understand this virus what it does how it does it and so on uh, but more information will emerge on that this this thing about UK doing worse I think we now have more deaths than any other country in the world apart from the US. Um, we've been track, we've been tracking Italy about two weeks behind. Um, so just on a, a sidebar on that, it's, it's no good really pointing at Italy saying they're undoing lockdown now. Therefore we should. We're, we're at a different stage of the pandemic than they are. They also had a much more stringent lockdown, by the way. So there's a whole bunch of, of reasons that explain the sort of course of the pandemic in any one country. And I think picking out any one thing, like the timing of the lockdown, for example, which did come, I think most people agree now, late in the UK. 
So, you know, we had many more deaths on the day of lockdown than other, many other countries when they did their lockdown. The entire country has been absolutely, you know, in awe of the, of, of the NHS, both as, as a concept and, and as a service that's performed. But how do you, as a, as a person who watches this stuff close up, how has the NHS performed? Where has it done well? And where do we have to accept that in this crisis it maybe hasn't done as well? Um, yeah, I think it's, I think just picking out highlights, I think where it's done really well was, I mean, and you have to think back a bit, uh, that the, the massive fears that the NHS would be overwhelmed, which is one of the, you know, stay home, protect the NHS, original slogan, slogans and so on. All the, all the projection modeling work done by epidemiologists at London School of Hygiene, Imperial, Liverpool and whatever was suggesting the NHS could really be overwhelmed in terms of ICU beds, staff and so on. Uh, the NHS has built the Nightingale hospitals, which are now essentially mothballed because in the end, it did actually create the capacity within its own services. It repurposed waiting rooms, operating theatres and so on. And, and so it looks to have coped, even though we were starting from quite a low base terms of beds and so on so that was one of the good things that the nhs you know it's it's not a great hulking uh, monolith that can't move quickly it, it really did in terms of and i have to mention the personal protective equipment that's been a complete disaster clearly um and you know i was going to say we'll learn about that for the for the next pandemic but it's um you know that has not been that has not been good so, um, and also it's, it's, um, it's sort of repurposed itself in terms of how you and I make contact with the health service. So, you know, you know, you've heard about the stats about the numbers of people going to A&E have dropped by 50%. It's probably similar for outpatients mm-hmm. as well. Uh, lots of, um, routine stuff has been stopped, but, um, GP visits gone down, but we know that the telephone conversations with GPs has gone right up. Um, so, you know, that's, it's, it's sort of, again, changed the way it's been delivering services, um, very rapidly indeed. So I think that's a plus point for the NHS. So looking ahead past the crisis, what are the key factors on the horizon for the NHS? I mean, we, you know, we all have our ideas about aging population and stuff like that, but what, you know, you, you look five, 10 years further ahead for the, for the NHS, where do you think, what what are the issues it will be wrestling with once we've got through this? Well, I think nor, you know normal times, as it were, will return. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, by the way, I should say uh, there will be another pandemic. <laughs> uh, it's inevitable. Uh, we don't know when. We don't know how big. Uh, it's a bit like economists predicting recessions. We know there's going to be one, but we don't not quite sure when it's going to happen or how big it will be. So that that will be something. I mean, the, the balance of illness and disease will continue to change. Um, uh, so in a sense, there'll be the normal stuff to deal with. Um, you mentioned aging. I mean, most studies show that it's not so much aging of populations which cause sort of higher demands on the health service. I mean, more of us are reaching older ages and fewer of us are suffering heart attacks and heart problems, circulatory problems and so on. But we're going to have to die of something and we'll, we'll suffer more dementia. And I think there's, a, I mean, the, the other thing which strikes me, which comes out of the COVID-19 stuff is, um, the arguments about the variable impact it's had on different communities. 
And certainly it's, it's, it's absolutely clear that COVID has affected more deprived communities rather than least deprived, um, BAME communities rather than others and so on. Actually, if you look at the sort of causes of death and um, for, for years and years, decades and decades, you see these inequalities in health. So, I mean, that's been highlighted by COVID-19. And um, certainly there's much more talk in the NHS now. Of, you know, how, what's the NHS's part in, what part can it play in really tackling inequalities in health? It's, it's not going to be up to the NHS entirely, of course. But there's a, you know, there could be a different switch in emphasis in terms of um, of priorities. So if you're a betting man, which I'm sure you aren't, um, what 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 needs to happen with the NHS after we've been through COVID? And what do you think is likely to happen when we've been through? Well, as I say, I think in terms of funding, I think the we're about average for the for, you know, EU countries, by the way. Can we still talk about EU countries? Well, I suppose. Uh, well, we're still I'll in Europe. Yes, we can. Um, <laughs> we know we're about average and we get a sort of average health system. Um, the fact that we really haven't done as well as I think many people think we should have done in terms of COVID will spur the more money. It, then, then the question is, you know, where do you spend it? What do you spend it on? Um, what's the best use of that money? And these are, I mean, that's just a continuingly difficult decision for healthcare and for uh, people and for politicians to make. But as I say, I think um, I think there's going to be some slight changes of emphasis. I think inequalities in health has, has come up the agenda. And remember, the NHS was founded on the, on a basis of, you know, inequality in access to health care um, and leading to yeah. inequalities in health. It's one of the founding sort of pillars of the NHS. I suspect obesity, uh, which has also been linked to COVID-19 deaths, um, there's been a, again, a wicked problem continuing for, for years in this country. Um, I think the prime minister has even mentioned that. That's going to, again, what's the focus on prevention? Um, we, we, we easily don't spend enough money on prevention, on changing people's behavior, uh, and so on. So I think some of these things are going to become more important over the next sort of five, 10 years. Ros, from what you've seen, um, has the crisis exposed particular problems in the in our healthcare system that that uh, we haven't talked about already? I mean, the inequality is a standout one. What what what, if, what has what has been exposed by COVID in your eye? The nature of COVID is that it hits elderly people harder, and I think therefore what is exposed most is the lack of a joined up healthcare system with social care because it's usually elderly people, not over always, but usually elderly people who are using social care. And what you've seen, I think, and what will come out over the next few months in terms of the relationships between um, care homes and hospitals and hospitals' understandable desire to keep COVID cases out of their care homes and care homes' dismay at their realisation that they would have to care for people when they were dying in ways that hospitals can sometimes do better. I think that was a very vivid demonstration of the problems that we have and the way that the interests of the patient come uh, secondary to the interests of the various the various organizations working for them i think um i, I think it's, it's really brought to the fore in the public's minds not just about health care but about social care um and we've been struggling for literally years to sort out social care 
Um, it's not just about more funding. It's about how we provide social care, who provides it, who owns the means of production, um, how it's integrated with healthcare, how healthcare is integrated with social care and so on. So I think that is definitely one of the things which, well, fingers crossed, I really hope comes out of this is, is uh, some real political action, which is what it's going to need to to help fix social care. Means of production, John, with the Marxist take on the health service there. I approve thoroughly. Uh, here, just finally, the national clap for carers is probably going to end this week, uh, ideally with a big one. Um, do we think that, I mean, I saw a poster this week, by the way, in a window, it said, Conservative voters at the next election, stay home, protect the NHS and save lives, which I thought was a bit glib, but it's quite funny. Um from your point of view, do you think this has this has changed the way we think about the NHS and will make us want different things from it? Uh, I, I don't know that it's necessarily changed the way that we think about it. I think that for, certainly for the time that I've been alive, our attitude towards it has tended to be one of uh, reverence, not necessarily backed up with our wallets. And so perhaps if, if the latter element uh, changes, uh, then that may well be a good thing going forward but um i think I, I don't know i think that it's um perhaps hammered home if it needed hammering home just how important it is to us as like i think not only for what it provides when it's there but also what it provides when it's not there i think one of the greatest benefits of it is the psychological one of the fact that i've never really like i've never thought that if i or anyone in my family or anything were to be taken it then like oh well obviously like the ambulance would come and then that would take you to the hospital and then people would do their best and there wouldn't be a bill at the end of it. Uh, and I think that there's a great degree of uh, psychological alleviation that comes from um, having that uh, safety net behind you. Uh, or, uh, and so, yeah, hopefully that isn't lost and is indeed funded how it uh, should be. Finally, you may have noticed while being locked up that the British culture industry has taken a right battering during this crisis. Theatres... What? I know. Theatres, music venues... <laughs> so, so that's why I've been eating tins of beans. <laughs> <laughs> Theatres, music venues, museums, galleries, operas, stand-up comedy clubs, Glastonbury, you name it, they're all closed for the foreseeable future. Many have improvised with online events, but it's just not the same. To get things moving again, Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden has launched a Cultural Renewal Task Force, a panel of eight people with a mission to revitalise the UK's arts and culture industry once coronavirus is in the past. There's nobody from the music business, museums, heritage, the books trade, or large-scale events on the panel. There's nobody from the fashion industry, which contributes about £26 billion to the UK every year and employs 800,000 people. But there is space for Five possibly predictable figures, including Nicholas Sorota, Michael Grade, and Martha Lane Fox. And a couple of perhaps less predictable ones, like the footballer Alex Scott. The new culture commissioner, Neil Mendoza, promises an ambitious philanthropic focus on arts and culture. Here, what does this task force say about how the government sees culture, what it thinks culture is? Uh, I, I don't really know, and I, I like... I worry about making the solely economic case for culture because it uh, feels to me uh, much the same as when people make the sort of solely economic case for the future of tertiary education uh, and stuff like that, which is that certain things should sort of be ends in themselves ideally without uh, 
rolling eyes and pound signs attached. But if you want to make the economic uh, case, then yes, it does pump a hell of a lot into the exchequer uh, on an annual basis. So yeah, support us. But quite frankly, like I, I, I understand that. Look, my my entire job is predicated on putting a large number of people into a space slightly too small for that number of people. Uh, and that is not something that uh, I will be able to do uh, for the foreseeable and quite frankly, for entirely understandable reasons. Um, so yes, uh, a bit of a bit of support wouldn't go amiss. A bit of clarification on the self-employment support scheme going forward wouldn't go amiss. But I also acknowledge the fact that particularly in the form of uh, live entertainment it's uh, I, I wouldn't like the job john I, well i just wanted to defend um <laughs> economists from the phrase the economic case i think quite often it's it's not the economic <laughs> it's not the economic case it's the financial case which is often a very sorry, narrow yes. you know but uh, no sorry just to pick you up on that but it's a sort of obviously very narrowly drawn but i mean the economic case to back you up here, is, is around things like, you know, what's the price of laughter, <laughs> which gets left out of the financial case, or what's the price of enjoyment? <laughs> if I knew, I'd be so making on. more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it has a very high price indeed, and, and, and hence a high value. So, um, yeah, sorry, just to defend the, the phrase economic case. Then. Well, I mean, yeah, that, but, you know, this is it, often the culture industries find that that is the way you can talk to politicians. You can say, you, "Do you realise we inject this amount of uh, about, amount of value into the economy? Do you realise this is our soft power in the world? Do you realise this is the identity of Britain?" And to be fair, successive governments have trotted out these campaigns about you know the value of British culture around the world. But then this happens, and there's nobody from our most powerful cultural force in the world, the music industry, nobody there. And, you know, fashion, which, you know, punches way above its weight, is not represented. It just doesn't seem to be a very good look. Um, I mean, it struck me as like, this is a commission made up of the kind of people who get on commissions rather than a thing that's going to make actual <laughs> differences you know out, out there in the world ross what did you think because i was i was a bit annoyed about martha lady fox she seems to just be on everything and and uh, i'm not entirely sure what she does but that but you you uh, uh, before we started this podcast you, you had quite a robust defense for it what did you think about the composition of the commission well i was a bit surprised to see martha lane fox on this commission because i don't think her strength is in culture i think her strength is in thinking about regulating the internet so it was surprising a little bit to see her there i think she was brought in because um she was is a bit younger and a bit more dynamic than some of the other people on the commission on the uh, cultural task force i think this is very much a group of grandees um and i think it has been designed to ensure that what you might see as the flagships of British culture, things like the RSC and the National Theatre and the Ballet and Royal Opera House are propped up so that we still have a, you know, tourists wanting to come here and visit them. Well, neglecting, as you say, less culturally, less entrenched kinds of culture. And It's quite um, uh, Sir Humphrey talking about the opera. Yeah, exactly. It's very- yeah. One might almost say elitist. One might say, you know, this is the culture of the elites and it's not, uh, you know, the download festival, yeah. <laughs> things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Where's the, where's the people representing, I mean, in my neck of the woods in Camden, the Dublin Castle? This is a music venue that's, I mean, my son has played there. It's been, a, it's been there for, for decades and it looks like it might just go out of business. 
and they're having to launch some sort of charity appeal for that. I mean, who, where are the people representing organisations or venues like yeah, that? Yeah, and it's very London-centric, which is also a problem because it's a problem in terms of London's position in the rest of the country right now, where a lot of people, I think, are going to be thinking about leaving London with economic recession, it just becomes less sustainable to live here. And I think the government is desperate to keep the cultural heart that is London's cultural heart beating. But increasingly, people will be moving out and will want to enjoy their culture elsewhere. And that's a big challenge, which I don't think this cultural task force is necessarily primed to get to, to, get to grips with. I mean, the response, though, would be that None of these businesses have ever really had an awful lot of support from government anyway. The, you know, the music industry, uh, you know, kind of built itself and uh, is currently wrestling with issues so huge and, and uh, globe spanning that um, almost, you know, what the British government does is kind of a, a, a bit of a sideshow. Um, who would we like to see on the cultural renewal task force? I oh, hear. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm increasingly cognizant of the fact that uh, cultural renewal task force does not sound like a government body that would exist in any government that is particularly favourable to artists. <laughs> it does sound a little bit uh, Chairman uh, Mao, doesn't it? Yes, uh, don't don't fall foul of the cultural renewal <laughs> task force. Is my advice. It also sounds it like, like this, they're going to steam somewhere to the Falklands or something to yeah. rescue. I don't know, stranded stand-ups who uh, can't find a gig yeah, and I'm, things. I don't. An aircraft carrier full of Stormzy and Wiley, and Dave, <laughs> that kind of thing, which I, I would be entirely in approval of that. So, uh, look, I only went to the Falklands to test my eyes. <laughs> I would. So, uh, here you're not nominating anybody because you think it's a bad idea. Roz, who are you nominating? I would really like to see someone involved in festivals. Um, festivals are potentially something that mm. could have a little bit of a renaissance because from what Michael Gove was saying today, while it's un unlikely that cafes and restaurants and pubs on the inside anyway are likely to be re reopening anytime soon, there might be a more opening up of outdoor events. And we're coming up to the summer, it's an ideal time. It may be possible if we find, as I think seems to be the case, that COVID doesn't spread nearly as much outside the possibility for outdoor events is, is much greater with social distancing and so on. And maybe it's all going to be like a glide ball where we all sit, you know, two meters apart with our little picnics. And <laughs> it's, the sort of, it's not going to be exactly a mosh. How are we all getting yeah. there? Then that's, not, uh, that's the other question. Yeah, yeah. that's a good question too. It's not, uh, it's not going to be a, a mosh pit like situation, but I would really like to see someone there. And I'm not the best person to say because I haven't been to very many of them, but someone involved in organising festivals. So what you're saying, Ros, is raves will save Britain. And I agree absolutely. John, who, who are you putting on the... Uh... Well, I'm not sure who it'd be, but somebody to represent the political satire industry. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of a rather meta thing to have on a government task force, but there, there should be somebody there representing them. God. Well, after I log off this, I'm back on a Zoom with Nish, so I'll ask him. Yeah, <laughs> oh, they, yeah get Kuma on, yeah. Well, Mike, I would like to see Crispin Hunt from the Long Pigs, uh, formerly uh, of the rock band, who is now a massively brilliant advocate for musicians in the music business. He's presently involved in the Broken Record campaign with uh, Tom from Gomez, we've had on the Bunker Daily previously. This guy is basically a fantastic voice for the music industry, able to deal with every issue that, 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 that faces that business. And why is he not in the room with Nicholas? Sorota, I don't know, so source it out, I think. 
We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. If your name isn't Dominic Cummings, you've probably been staying indoors in order to save the world. But what's taken our panellists' minds off the great task in hand? I hear, when you're not on your way to Bernard Castle, what have you been unwinding with? Well, if, if anything, my problem has been that there's been too much unwinding uh, for my liking. Uh, and I, I wanted to be wound. I wanted to work. Uh, and so what has been uh, quite nice is that I have acquired a job uh, for ah. the next few months uh, where I will be uh, writing on a topical show for uh, Americans called Hello America. I'm going to be taken away from the constant worry about the state of this by instead uh, being constantly worried about uh, reading the New York Times and the Washington Post. And where will we be able to see this show? Uh, that, is, that is on an app called Quibi. Mm, I know about this. It's the eight-minute little short form stuff for your mobile phone, isn't it? Yes. So uh, my friend uh, Nish Kumar is going to be uh, hosting it, uh, and uh, my pals and I are writing it. And excellent, including him. And that'll that'll be that'll be the unwinding. Will be to be rewound in a different okay. way. Okay, John. How? What? What are you taking your mind off the uh, the outside world with at the moment? What you mean apart from alcohol? Um... Yeah, apart from alcohol, which, which is good. obviously That's a baseline, baseline for everybody. Yeah, um, podcasts really got into podcasts. Um, right. I am the Egg Pod. This is a Beatles-based podcast. Oh. A guy called Chris Shaw. It's absolutely fantastic. Really recommend that. He gets people on to talk about their fa- favorite uh, Beatles Beatles record. Rule of Three. I've just come across uh, really? comedy podcast. Uh, two guys whose name now escaped me interview comedians about their favorite comedy things so that will be jason and john yes yeah that's it uh that's absolutely fantastic um so yeah podcasts for me rule of three is great isn't it i love rule of three i discovered it about three four months ago it's fantastic yeah and the ladybird books but yes ross you're uh what have i been doing well uh when we were allowed to drive places to exercise um uh, well, I don't drive, unfortunately, because like here I have no driving license, but uh, my husband drove. Uh, and uh, we drove to a lovely river in Essex, and I had the most fantastic swim. <laughs> swim in and it was oh, that sounds so nice. Yeah, and there was someone paddleboarding down the river, and they said, you're brave. And I said, yeah, yeah. And there was literally no one else swimming in the river, so there was no issue with social distancing. It was uh, it was brilliant. It's such such a... Uh, social distancing time. from the fish at the bottom of the river. Well, I've been uh, retreating into, from the awful world that we live in right now, I've been retreating into the calming and delightful world of Max Hastings' Vietnam, which seems explicable and comprehensible compared to what's going on. I've always loved Max Hastings' writing. He's my favourite massive Tory and his history of Vietnam is just incredible. Watching a terrible... You've always known how to kick back. That's all. Oh, I'm yeah. Watching about. a terrible mistake being made in detail before your very eyes and just knowing, well, at least it's not happening to me. Uh, incredible read. Fantastic. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel. John Appleby, thanks for coming in. It was um, fantastic and fascinating listening to you. Thanks to Ross Taylor and Ahir Shah. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and, of course, the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And if you back us, you're going to get a shout out on the show. And we're going to do the very first lot right now. So here comes our theme tune and listen up for our very first thank yous to our Patreon backers. Hello, and uh, it's uh, thank you from me for your support to David Martin, to Andrew Doran, to the wonderfully palindromic Griffig, to the wonderfully mononymic Matt, 
actor Fiona Pollard, Philippa Watts, and Stephanie B. And the Steph, the E's got an acute accent. The first E in the Stephanie. That's that's good. I, I like that. Hello from me to Adrian Oldman, William Alice, Ian, Edward Potter, Ed Beveridge, Ian Hodges, and Martin Butler. And huge thanks from me to Andy Scott, Alison Keyes, Tanshira Arjinkat, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Michael Bryan, SC, Maureen Ashley, and very first through the doors, our Patreon backer number one, Tanya Jane Park. Thanks to all of you, and we'll see you next week. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ross Taylor and Ahir Shah. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.